MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Clancy Tripp, a creative nonfiction, humor, satire, and fiction writer from the Midwest. Most recently, her work has been published in The Rumpus, shortlisted for the Smoke Long Quarterly Flash Fiction Award, and selected as the overall winner of the 2020 Iowa Review Award for Creative Nonfiction by Leslie Jameson. Clancy is a rising second-year MFA student at The Ohio State University, where she also serves as associate nonfiction editor at The Journal. Clancy, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, cool. Thanks for being here. Um, So we got lots to talk about, but um, I figured we'll start at the beginning. Uh, what, What was like the first moment when you realized the power of writing and the power of words? Yeah, I was thinking about this, and the one that came to my mind was an example of when things sort of went wrong. Um, I had started a satire publication at my college, and it had been sort of up and running for a couple months, and I knew that people, like, read it in general, I guess. Um, But I certainly, I mean, it wasn't, like, mind-blowingly popular at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So we wrote an article claiming that we were being shut down by the administration. And it was kind of like a critique of them in general and some other ways they had behaved, but they weren't shutting us down at all. Like that, that part was made up. Uh Um, But the reaction was really intense, intensely supportive. You know, people were like calling the ACLU and giving us money, which we didn't ask for and making (laughs) petitions Um, and I kind of panicked because, I mean, it was only up for like three hours, but I didn't mean to like inconvenience anyone or really throw people off. Um, but I think that was the first time where I was like, oh, even though I'm just writing something that's sort of silly and funny, people can take what I'm saying really seriously and it can sort of spin out, you know, and then there were response pieces for weeks in the actual newspaper um <laughs> learned a lesson <laughs> yeah oh so so this was uh the golden antlers is that right yeah yeah so this is while you were an undergrad at at claremont uh mckenna college is that right yeah cool absolutely. so and that was like a satire site right like a like a humor it was it was a little bit of both i mean i think on our best days we were satire but also you know it was undergrad it was college sometimes it was just straight up silly college humor I think but yeah we did do some critique work (laughs) it reminds me of like how I feel like every other month I see somebody freaking out about an article from the onion that they think is real yeah um that is the dream the absolute dream (laughs) (laughs) the dream is to yeah to have your words be so powerful that (laughs) people freak out confused and enraged (laughs) that's what I want (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Uh, so yeah, yeah I did. I, I, I poked around on that site. Is that still ongoing? The Golden Nailers? It is. They're working so hard. They sent that me a hat so cool. this year. So you know what? They're going strong. That is so, <laughs> so cool. What year, what year was that when you started it? Um, it was like 2012. Wow. So eight years. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Eight years. Yeah. And it's still no ongoing. No one there knows me still alive so that is that like a is that a weird feeling to like create something um that you like you pass on to someone else to continue and they don't even like know who you are 
Yeah, you know, I feel like a an old creep because once a year I'll show up at the staff meetings and I think they're just sort of like, who are you? <laughs> um, but I don't care. It makes me feel great about myself. You're like the the like dad who shows up at frat parties. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just always like, I'm so proud of you guys. You're doing great. And they don't know who I am. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so you didn't uh, study writing in college. You actually studied um, like literature and film. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, did you did you take I any thought, creative writing classes as an undergrad? I took um, two one of which was pretty rough and one of which introduced me to creative nonfiction. Um, we didn't really have creative writing as an option. So it was a pretty small school, mm-hmm. uh, but I did take what I could. So when you took that creative nonfiction course, um, did it like light a fuse in you to start writing? Did you start writing a lot more after that? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really understand that that was a legitimate genre. I thought that nonfiction could be journalism uh, or you could just write fiction. And I didn't realize that sort of literary nonfiction existed. And I had a really delightful teacher who encouraged everything I wrote. So I think, yeah, that just got me started. And I yeah. jumped in. Cool. And then and then, did you start the Golden Antlers after that? Or was that already ongoing at that point? That, you know, they might have happened right around the same time. I think probably the Golden Nailers was first, but yeah. I was like, oh, people will read what I write. I'm going to yeah. write a bunch of stuff. <laughs> cool. Yeah. But then, uh, so you left Claremont and, and the Golden Antlers and moved to New York. And at the time you wrote that you were doing so in hopes of becoming a real adult. So I'm curious, were you successful? <laughs> um, yes, I did not enjoy it. <laughs> no, I think... I've talked to people who are applying to MFA programs and they're sort of like this, do I wait a couple years between college or do I just see if I can go? Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, my program here is, I don't know, maybe half and half. And I'm really glad that I did something else for a little while. If only to make me so grateful for time to write that is just like 10 times more productive, I think. Well, yeah. You, so you went to Columbia and studied teaching. Um, I my background's yeah. in teaching as well. My undergrad was um, oh, cool. uh, undergrad was English education. So I spent time teaching. It is not particularly conducive to uh, writing. Um, it is <laughs> yeah. it is the definition of a full time job. Um, oh God, yeah. yeah. So so why teaching? Why'd you go that route? Well, it just. I mean, I'm not going to say anything new here, but I had English teachers who changed my life and I was like, I'm going to get in on that. Um, I don't know if you had this experience, but it was sort of an experience of killing the things I loved. Um, Whenever I tried to teach literature that I was really passionate about, because I worked in the public school system in New York City, it was like uh, sort of reduced to what's the literary element here and what's the central idea? Uh, so I was trying to share the literature that was really important to me. Don't know that I was able to accomplish that. Yeah, that's really frustrating. When If you end up in a school that, that tries to control that kind of stuff, it can be super frustrating. I was lucky. I taught at a high school, Hickman High School in Columbia, Missouri, that was like the most supportive place. The oh, English amazing. department there was incredibly supportive, and they gave me like all the <laughs> freedom to it. do everything I wanted. Um, and so that was well, super fulfilling, but a lot of time, a lot of time. Um, and 
uh, was hard to find writing time um, while teaching for sure. Um, So, so how long did you teach in New York? Um, I taught for about four years. Um, And then the last year I was just a freelance gifted and talented preschool teacher, (laughs) which is not a real thing, but uh, I, I wanted more time to write and I got it. Yeah. So is that why you pursued an MFA? Yeah, I, I always knew that I wanted to go for an MFA. Um, but like I said, I wanted to see if I could be a real person for a little while. Um, and that that also helped me figure out my priorities. You know, if you're only sleeping four hours a night, but you still want to write for an hour, how much do you really like it? Yeah. I thought that was helpful in a depressing way. <laughs> well, I mean, I think like the main function of the MFA is like, just to give you this time and space, um, to write. Um, so, um, yeah, I imagine like, I'm sure it was the same for you, for me going from like trying to squeeze in an hour, like before school or after school between like grading papers and then going to like everything I do today has to do with writing. Wow. That's freeing, you know? Yeah. It, so, I mean, knock on wood, but it has not gotten old for me. I just, cannot believe that someone is going to give me money to write stories for a little while. Yeah. I mean, I've said it before and I'll continue to say it. uh, As long as someone is willing to pay you to write, just keep doing it. Yeah. That's my scheme. Maybe I'll go get a PhD, get another couple of years. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Um, So before the PhD, Ohio state, how'd you end up there? Uh, I went to, Tin House Writers Workshop a couple years ago and just met a ton of fantastic people. And one of those people happened to be at Ohio State at the moment. So we never overlapped, but she talked to me about the program. Um, She recommended I read Alyssa Washuda, her book, which I absolutely love, who teaches here. Uh, So after I read that book, I was very confident that I would really like to work with her. And here I am. Yeah. Did you apply to a lot of schools or did you apply just to Ohio State? I think I have. Oh, oh gosh, no. I'm not that confident. <laughs> um, I applied to, uh, I want to say, 10 different schools. Yeah. And got a lot of rejection. Yeah, it's a common ten, experience, of course. I think 10 is a pretty common number of schools to apply to. And uh, I think majority rejections is also common. That's what I tell myself, even if it's not true. <laughs> That's what uh, I'll, I'll tell you that too. And you can tell me that and we'll Great. feel better about ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So the MFA in creative writing at Ohio state, it's a three year fully funded program. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll say they, they have an excellent website. So if any listeners are thinking about applying there, you can easily find like all the general information on the program that you need. Um, but they have, the typical fiction, nonfiction, and poetry tracks. Um, But it also seems that there's a lot of opportunity to work outside of those tracks. Um, From from what I could tell on the website, there are special topics workshops in the long poem and characterization and literary translation and in humor writing, as well as classes in screenwriting and playwriting. Um, And something called the Graduate Interdisciplinary Specialization in the Fine Arts, which apparently (laughs) allows students to take graduate courses in other arts disciplines. So the whole time I was reading this, I was thinking, this is a great place for someone who likes to write in various genres. Um, And you're in the nonfiction track, but you tend to write stuff um, in various genres. So, um, yeah, 
have you taken classes um, like outside of nonfiction? Absolutely. I mean, I think I can't hype that aspect of this program enough. Um, I came here just pure creative nonfiction. Like I tried fiction, didn't love it, hadn't tried poetry. Um, but I've, I've taken everything here. I think last semester I was in poetry, nonfiction, and fiction at the same time, which was a little ambitious, wow. but still worth it. Um, and there's really not distinctions in the sense that people will keep you out of a workshop if you want to be there. And yeah, I mean, we all know who came here for poetry, but it's really just whatever you are interested in taking. Um, and that goes even beyond the English department. So I think some of the examples you're talking about there, because it's Ohio State and it's such a huge institution, um, it's basically a free-for-all. You know, if you want to take screenwriting, you can. If you want to take Russian, you can. If you want to study something in women's studies because it coincides with your creative nonfiction, they're all for it. Um, awesome. So I feel like very lucky to uh, to have taken these workshops and actually coming out of it leaning more towards fiction, which I would have never considered had I yeah. been in pure CNF, I think. Yeah, you yeah. just said that you 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 know you didn't really like uh, fiction uh, right away, but but that's cool that it offers you the the chance to like experiment in these different genres because I was the same way. Like I said, creative nonfiction called to me at first, but like um, eventually I now I study fiction. That's pretty much what I write exclusively. And you went the other way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, we have a lot of that. You don't need to, as far as I can tell, declare or anything. But every mm -hmm. year, there's one or two people who are like. I know I said I was a CNF writer, but now I'm fiction. I know I said I was fiction, but now I'm CNF. That's cool. Um, yeah. How does that affect like um, the thesis? I'm wondering, like, do, does Ohio State allow you all to, um, to write a thesis that's combines different genres of work? I'm not totally sure because I, uh, that that's in the third year, but from what I can tell, this program is crazy accommodating. Um, and if you want to do something, they will find a way to make it happen for you. Uh, so I know that if you just purely wanted to switch over, yeah, I could write a thesis in fiction. Uh, but I assume that they would allow for some mixing as well, because also our professors here are pretty big on not just being one genre themselves, you know, so they know how to support hybrid stuff, weird mixes. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Uh, and you, you also told me um, in our email that uh, you've done some work in graphic memoir creation. Yeah, it's tell so me about cool. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was, like I was talking about, you can take many courses outside. Uh, this is technically in the English department, but not creative writing. And it was a graduate level course on graphic narrative. And so, of course, all the PhD students were like writing papers and analyzing but we creative kids were allowed to just, you know, produce our own work as a final project. And I don't want to count how many hundreds of hours it took me to learn how to do it. But, you know, I studied the theory of graphic narrative, how to create it, somewhat taught myself how to draw, um, and created a four-page graphic memoir excerpt that I'm sending out now. That's awesome. Which I would have never picture for myself yeah it was so fun yeah though. that's the kind of thing that I can't imagine myself ever do are you an artistic like uh, person like have you ever done drawings or like <laughs> painting any kind of 
hands-on no. art like that? I would like to say yes, uh, but no. I mean, that's why drawing takes me probably 10 times longer than any yeah. other person. But yeah, I can't know. imagine. Well, I can see how much time. I can't imagine like myself being able to do that. I feel like I'm like awful at drawing, but I would totally take that class. It sounds super fun. It sounds super interesting. Uh, and yeah, it's cool that you had a chance to experiment with it. Um, I feel like that's what these programs should be about. I mean, the chance to just explore, yeah. right? Like explore yeah. what you enjoy with writing and what, you know, <laughs> inspires you the most. I mean, that's what it's all about. Yeah. It sounds obvious, but you know, not as common as you'd think. No, I don't think that's the way it is at, at um, you know, every program. Um, I think a lot yeah. of them are pretty structured. Um, oh. But uh, another thing that's uh, mentioned on the website is that the program is quote unquote, well known for its sense of community and a faculty that is as committed to teaching as their own writing, which every <laughs> program says, uh, but oh, isn't great. always the case. So what's your experience been on that front? <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I would have said it. So like Disney flowers <laughs> type. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the profs are super genuine, um, especially, I mean, not that they weren't wonderful before, but when COVID hit, they really, it was just so clear that they were trying to do anything to support our work and like make sure we were still okay creating and that if we needed time um and you know they're they're still working writers they definitely know how to draw boundaries of like my book is coming out this year i maybe can't meet with you every day <laughs> uh, but they as as far as i can tell every professor i've had has really genuinely wanted my work to be better um and been willing to whenever I reached out to them, give me some way to make that happen. That's great. I think is pretty rare. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, yeah. Because I think people forget that like these, these, the professors in these programs are working writers and a lot of them aren't teachers by training. Um, so, yeah. so yeah, I mean like naturally there's going to be places where um, the professors, you know, maybe that teaching side doesn't come as naturally for them. So it's great to hear that like the professors there are super supportive. Oh, um, yeah. They're and, wonderful. and what about uh, like amongst the cohort, like amongst other MFA students, <laughs> is it a good community? Yeah, I think. So I was talking to one of our professors. Um, we have a class called literary publishing where we just generally talk about the writing world. And she was talking about their vision for founding the OSU program. And mm -hmm. it was sort of not in a bad way, but meant to be the anti-Iowa in the sense that from what I hear of Iowa and from, and maybe this is just a while ago, um, it can be pretty cutthroat and maybe you don't necessarily want others to succeed if it comes at your own expense, um, competition for funding. And so when they created this program, they were really focused on everyone gets funding. Um, there's no reshuffling. If you want to try something, you can, you're not like locked out of poetry because they think you're a creative writing or a creative nonfiction person. You wouldn't know how to do that. Um, and that kind of extends to the students too. I can't think of anyone who's been anything but happy for someone else's publication success. You know, they'll send it out to the entire 
all the cohorts, I guess. And, you know, people will just celebrate you. It's really sweet. People passing along opportunities. Yeah. Just good stuff all around. That's great. Um, and then I read also that there's this thing called mother tongue. Yeah. Tell me about oh, mother tongue. Oh, I hope tongue. it still happens <laughs> even post, you know, when we're not allowed to be together. Uh, but we call it Moto and it's Moto. our little reading series. Um, which is, so we are our only audience, which is great. I don't know if that's a rule or if that's just what's happened, but oh. we rent um, a private space. You know, we bring food and drinks. Um, there's like mini introductions that are sort of cutesy that we do for each other. And it was just, it's a great way to be welcomed into a program when, I mean, it's hard to do creative nonfiction. You're like, here's all the bad stuff that's ever happened to me. Right. Uh, but that reading series was very sort of welcoming and just showing how supportive everyone was of one another. And so, so most first years are allowed to read. Oh, cool. Nice. So it's it's just a, essentially like um, the MFA students get together and uh, read their work just for other MFA students. Do professors come? No, the professors don't come. And that's actually uh, on purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, they just wanted to give us a space. There's a second year reading series and a third year reading series, which the professors do come to and, you know, read themselves sometimes. But Moto is sort of like our little space just for us. And I mean, you know, people's partners are welcome. And of course, if they wanted to bring someone else, I'm sure they could. But it's really meant to be sort of like our little incubator yeah it's just great. us students yeah. yeah it sounds fantastic i mean we at my school we do um some readings but they're usually open to the public at like cafes or bookstores um but i'm totally gonna yeah. steal that and bring it to my cohort and say oh, yeah <laughs> just doing like a small readings with just the cohort or with you know, like the students in the program would be a great way to build community i bet um, oh yeah for sure so, they have their own merits yeah right um so another great opportunity, which I know you've taken advantage of, is the literary journal at Ohio State called The Journal, um, which um, I don't like the name, uh, but, <laughs> but it's a great journal, so it gets a pass, uh, yeah. and you're the associate nonfiction editor there. Uh, what's your experience been like? It has been very um, thrown into the fire, I guess, but... I've really enjoyed it, and I've, I've found that it's helpful for my own writing to see the other side of things, just how many hundreds and hundreds of submissions and how many people read your piece before it's passed along and, like, what the voting process looks like on submittable. Um, and I'm glad that, you know, they just sort of were like, okay, here's your job. Now go do it, you know, because I got to sort of develop my own sense of what I thought was good writing instead of trying to adhere to a very strict like publication list of standards. And it's, you know, we, we work together. I might have a piece that I'm like, no, I, I really love this piece. Please let me have it. And they'll say, yeah. And I'll contact the writer and, you know, see if we can arrange it. Uh, but in general, we all work together on pieces and the, the nonfiction editor is very supportive of everything we're doing. That's great. Um, yeah. and so like, has that experience reading all those submissions affected your writing at all? It has, um, I would say almost entirely in a good way because I see how much good writing 
we say no to, you know? So now when I get rejected, I just assume (laughs) that I was one of the really good ones who was right after the person who got, um, who got accepted. And I think, you know, we also have a couple prizes here at Ohio state that most of us read for. So like the slash prize, which is a book publication for fiction, nonfiction, and there's some other prizes and, man, you learn a lot in terms of professionalism when you're on the other side reading the cover letters and the, you know, typo-written manuscripts. I think it's it's really worth doing. Yeah, so I was going to ask if you had any advice for people who um, are submitting to, um, like, good journals like that. Obviously, no typos would be number one. Yeah, no typos number one. Um I don't know. I mean, this isn't super creative advice, but just like the sheer number of submissions that we get, you really have to have a good first couple of pages. I mean, I myself have realized how much time I need to put in, like even just the first paragraph, making it good. Because if I'm going to read 25 of those in one day, you really need to hook whoever's on the other side of it. Um, And so I think that's where I've learned to focus a lot more of my energy, having seen just how overwhelmed every journal is. Yeah. I mean, that's advice that I've gotten in workshops as well. Um, Just if you're going to be sending something out, the first page has to be really good. Yeah. And some people have thoughts of like, I think more so in poetry, but just like if I organize it, a certain way, like the first one is my good one, but I'm ending on like a beautiful, strong, perfect one. And they're just not going to get to the ending, you know? Yeah. <laughs> just always put your best stuff put very you. first, no matter what it is. That's good advice. Um, yeah. So you've, you brought a short creative nonfiction piece to read. I did. Do you mind reading it now? Actually pull it up. Great. Uh, feel free to introduce it however you'd like and then uh, read the whole thing and we'll talk a bit about it afterwards. Sounds good. Okay. So this is a piece called Pulling My Weight and it's about uh, when I was in New York, I worked at the polls. And so it's a piece I'm trying to work on for this election season. So Pulling My Weight. Around five in the evening, after I had already been working the polls for 12 hours, a voter approached me, holding his ballot uncertainly. He tilted his head at the scanner. Do I just shove it in then? Yeah, I said, just vote real hard. The voter left the furnished basement of the retirement community on 86th Street that functioned as our polling site. With the exception of four windows on the far end of the room that offered a titillating view of the wheels of parked cars, the half-underground room was devoid of distraction. The only thing adorning the walls were two paintings of blobby yellow flowers that were, I hope, painted by the residents of the nursing home whose basement we'd commandeered for the election. I had arrived to work at my polling site this past September at 4.50 a.m., dressed as an actual flag blue and white striped pants, red shirt, and white shoes. This, it turned out, was exactly the wrong call. My octogenarian peers were all dressed in tasteful, nonpartisan greens and purples. Still, I was brimming with excitement to single-handedly solve the problem of millennial voting apathy 
by virtue of my shining example of civic duty performance. Also, if we're being honest, I was doing penance for failing to vote in the 2016 election after a registration snafu. Any enthusiasm I began the morning with had long since dissipated by the time I realized my future included spending 17 hours in a basement, standing next to a sign that read, scanners here, and adding my own riveting commentary such as, here are the scanners, the scanners are here, and regard, the scanners. The Board of Elections representative had pitched my job, scanner inspector, as a sort of elite young person job requiring technological prowess. I inspected my charge, the ballot scanner. It was the approximate size and shape of a city trash can, only with the space to cast ballots under the lid where a pile of steaming garbage would be. My primary duty, besides gesturing helpfully, consisted of not pressing the machine's power button. It turned out ignoring the siren call of the power button was what frightened the oldsters. I may have been the only poll worker in possession of two hip joints in mint condition, but I understood their reticence. It was an inviting button. I accepted the mantle of resident youth and resisted temptation so all votes could be counted. My first opportunity to flex computer-savvy skills came four hours into the morning, when the hulking scanner-slash-trash-can flashed an ominous error message. I used my technological insight ability to read the screen to discern the holdup's cause, a paper jam. We were forbidden to open the ballot boxes, lest we tamper with the election, but it turned out a sharp kick to the scanner's belly did the trick analog style. The hours passed with agonizing slowness. It was depressing considering how little I was contributing. I became worried my apathy was morphing into antipathy, so I began taking notes of my experience to distract myself. Four o'clock. A voter asked me to read the ballot aloud to her, gave me a conspiratorial wink, and pleaded, just tell me who to vote for. I won't tell. Refusing to commit electoral fraud was the most exhilaration I'd felt all day. I was lightheaded with the rush from all that integrity. Also, dehydration. Six o'clock. The power button beckoned, lurking suggestively underneath the control panel lid. Seven o'clock. A steady stream of voters entered, cast their votes, and, thanks in no small part to my direction, had their ballots scanned and counted. I began doing covert yoga to maintain feeling in my extremities. I had to stay live so that when the polls closed, I could do my important work, closing scanners and not pressing buttons. 7.30. A voter gave me the business card of a cult I could join if I wanted to. 8 o'clock. A mother-daughter duo walked in. It's my first time voting, the daughter announced, peppering poll workers with questions. She kept peeking around the privacy booth to consult her mother. When she was ready, I pointed out the scanners with an extra special flourish. I noticed faint smiles on the faces of my normally all-business fellow scanner inspectors. Once her ballot was counted, the daughter walked toward the door, paused, then turned around. She pushed, pushed out the straps of her backpack and stood for a moment chewing her lip. She took in the room and said to no one in particular, I'm going to remember this. Nine o'clock. We closed the polls and downloaded the votes. I must have looked extraordinarily worried as I worked to close my scanner because a compatriot revealed that the power button warnings were only a scare tactic. No need to worry. Worst case, the machines had backup generators. No votes would be lost. 
I paused for a moment, wondering where, if not in the computer and its buttons, my millennial strength lay. But then I held the thumb drive. Back in training, I'd been alarmed to hear that the future of democracy rested on such a smashable item. But the instructor assured us that if we handled it gently and kept it in sight, all would be secure. Cupping the small rectangle in my palm was the first time in 17 hours I understood the gravity of my role. I was safeguarding the votes of people who came before work and after work and with their babies and with their grandparents and with their mothers to vote for the very first time. The older people who voted with regularity and the people my age who were going to remember this. In training, the woman next to me had asked how we could be certain the votes were safe. How was one to treat such a precious object before delivering it to the officials for tallying? She foresaw this moment, a tiny thing, entrusted with the voice and power of thousands held in our hands. It held the contribution of my generation, not in tech savviness or even in enthusiasm, but in the simple act of voting. It was warm in my fist. How was I to deliver this mighty gift with the appropriate reverence? You hold it high above your head, our instructor said, extending her fist to model for us, just like the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, good job. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it's yeah. a little weird reading that to a, a computer screen. Uh, yeah, I, well, I you're had a to... very supportive computer screen. <laughs> okay, thanks. I'm glad. I had to mute myself because I was giggling the whole time. So, um, oh, good. Yeah, I uh, I like how you articulate in this piece, like the moment when you like started taking notes, um, which like for me. I mean, it reminds me of myself um, and like, I'm, I'm right. curious how often in your day-to-day -day life uh, do you realize something is maybe good for a story and stop what you're doing and start taking notes and do your friends give you shit for that? Um, yes, as they should. No, they actually encourage it. And I know this is probably not great, but I'm, I'm usually pretty aware if I'm doing something that I feel like is enough out of my norm to that I should really be paying attention and so when I you know when I went to the training meeting I think a couple of weeks before the actual election as soon as our instructor said the thing about the Statue of Liberty I was like oh <laughs> I'm gonna write that down Absolutely. and then pay really close attention to what happened so sometimes I sort of work backwards if someone's saying something very cool I'm like oh well I gotta find a story to end on that note yep yeah, I mean, that's all it takes, just like that one seed or, um, you know, yeah, just that one line, even with fiction, like uh, like if a really good line pops in my head, I'll write it down and then, you know, you figure yeah. out the story later, right? Yes, absolutely. I've got a whole collection of little seeds yeah. <laughs> that I go back to. <laughs> so you so you started the Golden Antlers way back in 2012, which um, seems like a really different time. Uh, Mitt Romney was running oh, for, yeah. president, for president <laughs> against Obama that year. Uh, and I remember people were losing their oh. mind because like they thought Romney was this corporate shill with his binder full of women, um, which when I think back no. about it, when I think so back funny. about it, it's yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. But now when I look at the world, it's hard for me to find very much that's funny about it. Um, so I'm curious if you struggle more with writing humor or satire now in this, the truly awful year of 2020. Uh, yeah, hopefully, you know, the last awful year. Um, this is something I think 
the humor communities talk about a lot. Other people I know who are writing more actively in humor who write for, you know, late night shows and Netflix shows and stuff like that. They have, I mean, they're having a really hard time. You just get super burnt out. But if you're not as involved, I actually think it's a really great time to be writing satire because in terms of, I mean, all this nonsense about fake news, I think our generation and the people younger than us have just an insanely good eye for the person who's speaking and like, is the satire, is this real? You know, they're constantly evaluating. So if you can find something that is in fact stranger and funnier, well, I mean, it's probably going to be funnier, but stranger than what's actually happening in the government, then there's definitely an audience there of people who are just like attuned and ready for whatever you have to bring to them. So in, in some ways it's kind of, it's a nice new orientation, I think. Yeah. I mean, I actually, I think about that a lot. The, one of the things you just brought up, which is this idea that um, people nowadays are more tuned in to um, whether someone is full of shit or not. Um, they can read people really well, <laughs> Important. Um, which, you know, like I agree with, but at the same time, I remember, like, I came up from a really small town, and I remember one of the things that I, like, really um, respect about people there is they they don't put up with bullshit. They don't. Yeah. Like, they will see straight through it. But then, uh, here we have the biggest bullshitter of all bullshitters in the White House. <laughs> and, you know, like, I, I just don't get, I don't get how, like, people I know who can see straight through people would then vote for somebody like that. And maybe yeah. that's the reason that like after he was elected, a lot of people were like satire is dead. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's not possible anymore in this strange world we're living in. But I, I, I suspect you disagree with that. I wish I had an answer for that. Um, no, actually I don't necessarily disagree with that. I mean, I think it all depends on the mindset you're going into it with. I know that McSweeney's, for example, the, the humor site, they all the time it happens where people will assume that it's real just because they're searching for what they're searching for. You know, they have like maybe an extreme conservative viewpoint that someone has adopted for satire, but you know, the same terms lead them to McSweeney's. They might not know it's a joke, you know, so we find exactly what we're looking for. And unfortunately I think that's what happened with our president, but that doesn't mean that there's no place for humor, you know, because there are still people coming into it with the right mindset. And I also think we need it more than ever right now. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Just die of seriousness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's hard to watch the news and hard to like be on social media these days. Um, Yep. And then I read something like, you know, obviously like before this interview, I read a, a bunch of your stuff and I, you know, it was nice. <laughs> it was like, oh, a break um, yeah. from the gloom, um, yeah. which was nice. Um, so you mentioned that you have been writing um, more fiction nowadays. Do you find yourself like moving more in that direction or do you think you'll always dabble with, with all genres? I I would hope to do them all. I am kind of leaning more towards fiction just because I find the politics of creative nonfiction kind of tough in terms of like, you know, is it 
am I allowed to tell so-and-so's story? You know, who am I going to affect if I tell um, X, Y, and Z? And, you know, there's, there's disagreement, like what people have rights to, but in fiction, you know, it can still be 75% my story, but no one's going <laughs> to come after me in court or, you know, burn my family to the ground. So I kind of, I like the freedom there. I think yeah. it's been nice. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> uh, yeah, safer. and yeah, it is a little bit safer. Um, well, I mean, kind of going off of that, I mean, we can't wrap up the interview without talking about the fact that you were recently selected as the winner of the 2020 Iowa Review Award for yeah. Creative Nonfiction. Congratulations. It's a really big Thank deal. You. It's a great journal. It's a great prize. Um, I'm sure that was super exciting. Yeah. Um, oh, I lost my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. That's great. Um, and just speaking of like, the politics of writing creative nonfiction, you had mentioned that um, you were inspired partially by an essay that Melissa Phoebos wrote um, called mm -hmm. The Heartwork, Writing About Trauma as a Subversive Act. Um, in that essay, which I hadn't read before, so thank you for sending it to me. It was amazing, powerful, important. Oh, People should it. read it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was great. Um, and one of the things that stood out to me was like the idea of writing as therapy. Um, which is something I, I talk about a lot. I mean, I think about writing as therapy. I would lose my mind if I wasn't writing every day. I do lose my mind Absolutely. when I'm not writing every day. Yeah. So it's Present super important tense. to me. But yeah. um, in her essay, she talks about how like there is some politics around that, um, uh, around the yeah. idea of using um, creative nonfiction as like therapeutic writing. So um, if you could just tell us, like, tell us about, uh, like, your inspiration for that essay and, like, tell us a little bit about that essay. Yeah. Um, you know, I, what I love most about her, that essay is that it very explicitly gives you permission to write what you want to write. Um, and of course I know all these things, like, that it's based in sexism, that writing about, like, emotions and sexual violence is frowned on in part because it's usually women writing it and, you know, people are sick of hearing about it as they should be because it's terrible. But I think after reading that, I felt more confident in like, yes, in some ways, my story is not a super like rare and crazy one. In fact, it's in some ways a very common one. Um, and that essay is about like, recovering from sexual assault years later. So it's not actually about the assault. It's about like PTSD and extreme anger. And when writing it, I was, you know, it's a very vulnerable essay because it's just <laughs> me sort of losing my mind and being furious with people and making really poor decisions. Um, and a lot of those decisions fall within sort of unacceptable behavior for women and for victims in general. So I think the act of writing that essay was sort of like, look, it's a real thing people do. I wish people understood that this was a real reaction um, to the situation. And so I'm gonna write about it. And I think Melissa's essay really, I, I definitely went back and read it a couple times while writing the Iowa Review essay, just to be like, nope, it's still okay. I can write this crazy, embarrassing thing that I did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I like that idea of like 
that the essay kind of Melissa Phoebos kind of gave you permission to um, write that story. Um, yeah. I can't imagine anyone. I really can't wrap my head around the idea of anyone saying like, Oh, you shouldn't write about that. That's insane to me. <laughs> uh, but like, but you know, that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen all the time. Um, yeah. But, but those are incredibly important stories because I think you're right. They're, they're, they're not so out of the ordinary, which um, is sad, but true. Yeah. And so they need to be told and need to be heard by a lot of people. Um, yeah. There was a great line from that, from Melissa's essay that stood out to me where she said, you know, she was kind of talking about, you know, she was kind of going off on people who have that mindset that you can't write yeah. um, as therapy. <laughs> yeah, go, Melissa. It's awesome. Um, and then she, she wrote, let's face it. If you write about your wounds, it is therapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, <laughs> isn't that what the vast majority of us are doing is writing about our wounds? I mean, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, Absolutely. poetry. Yeah. Yeah. I've never... Every time I write an essay like a, that, that is important to me, it's because it coincides with me learning as I'm writing it. You know, that essay is a lot about anger. And so in order to write that essay, I taught myself a lot about anger. I asked myself like why I had been experiencing anger. And God, that's just what I love about writing, you know? So I was creating something, but I was also, you know, fixing my brain. Yeah. And you can, you can have like the comfort of knowing that if you don't want anybody to read it, you, you, they don't have to, right. You can write it and nobody yes. has to see it if you don't want them to see it. But if you finish it, yeah, <laughs> there's a chance you're going to look back and read it and think, Oh, okay. Maybe I do want somebody to read this. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, that's how I convinced myself it was okay to send to this contest. I was like, you know what? No one's going to read it. It's fine. And then, you know, it won and they're going to publish it. And I was, of course, super excited. But then I sort of had to go back and be like, I got to have some conversations with some people because they're going to show up in this piece. And the only reason I put it out in the world, because, you know, you convince yourself, or at least some people I know do, you convince yourself that no one's giving it, it's fine. And then once it's out there, it's worth it. But Well, I am very glad you won. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I very much look forward to reading it when it comes out um, in the Iowa nice. Review this December. Um, I've This has been really fun talking to you. Thanks for coming yeah, and chatting with me. Yeah, this has been a delight. Yeah. Thanks for having me. 